kind of a news junkie. I don't know if you guys are news junkies, but I like to find the kind of the hidden news, the weird articles. You guys know the Suez Canal one. I was looking at all the different ones, all the angles. But there's this other thing I was diving in and finding out in the news. It's a really weird one. It's some sort of pandemic that's out here. It's probably the reason we're all here now, but it's kind of exciting as Christians in a way, but for those on the outside of the faith, they're going to struggle with some things. And even us at times are going to be like, what's true? What's not true? Do I put my hope or do I put my faith in vaccines or, or in masks? Do I trust science? And if I do trust science, which science? Because there's about 1,100 different ones online. But for those of us who are saved, we can put some of that inside and say, I put my faith, hope, and trust in God and in God's word. And I put my life on Christ. And, and I'm okay with that. But here's the thing. When we talk about missions, when we look at the world around us, that's not the case for everybody. They don't get that confidence because they don't know Christ. So they do wrestle with these questions that are life-changing questions, that are daily impacting questions, and they're difficult questions to answer. So for us... For us here, followers of Christ, this is a sweet reminder. What an amazing season to be on mission more than ever in our lives. Where there are people literally asking, where do I place my hope? Where do I place my faith? This morning we're going to look at a small portion. The students might roll their eyes because we went through Nehemiah with our students. We're going to do, do some of that again this morning. So if you guys have your Bibles with you, if you have your Bible app, crack open Nehemiah. We're going to start in chapter 1. But let's pray this morning before we start. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people that have come here this morning. God, thank you that the rain is held off and all of this is your doing. God, we pray as we study your word that we hear what you have to say, that we hear your intentionality behind your message, that our ears are open, that our eyes can see what you would have us here this morning. Amen. Got a really nice wind going on, on up here. So as we look into Nehemiah, if you guys are opening up, I'm going to give you a little intro. I don't know if you like trilogies. I'm a big trilogy guy, but Nehemiah is part of a trilogy. So there's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They're called post-exilic books. Post-exilic trilogy kind of sounds like a cool movie, maybe someday. But the post-exilic is just this. They're after the exile. So in Babylon, they were exiled, and now they're after the exile. So Ezra is the story of rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah, we have the story of rebuilding the walls. And then Esther, we have the story of rebuilding or regathering God's people. So Nehemiah, it's got, his, it's got this kind of cool view. It's a first-person book, so we get to hear his heart, what he wrestles with, what he's going through, what he struggles with, and what he sees. But before we just dive into the text here, I'm going to say this. Nehemiah really isn't anyone special. It feels hard to say that. Matt King's here. You know what I'm talking about. Nothing special. He, he's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a leader. He's not a warrior. He's not a commander. He's not in the line of a king. He has no power, prestige, no authority. He's just a guy that brings a cup to a king. Follow along with me as we read chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued to fast and pray before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you, and even I and my father's house, which have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, uh, and, sorry, and do them through, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give, your, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. So we have this scene where Nehemiah is greeting his brother and some of the guys that come from Judea and he's asking what's happening. And they're saying, man, it's not good. Things aren't going down well back home. The walls are down. People aren't protected. God's people are exposed. His city is in ruins. And he hears of the devastation in God's city and his people. And his heart weeps and it mourns. What does he do? He turns to fasting and praying. Let's just take a look for a second. Look back there at 6 and 7. Look at the content of this prayer. In 6 and 7, Nehemiah confesses his sins and the sins of the people before God. Let's get this right first. Let's get this right before God. Let's acknowledge who we are. In verse 8 and 9, he reminds God of the promise that leads to the scattering of his people, which we have seen, and also to the promise that would bring them back into the fold. So now let's acknowledge who God is, who he says he is, and that he's faithful to his promises. He ends his prayer saying this, God, make your servant successful today. Nehemiah hears the distress in Jerusalem, and he sees the need. So let's just, take, let's just take the application. There's a need. We're well aware of, of the town around us, of Muskoka, and even further Ontario. There is a need around us, and there is a devastation that has happened as a result of our sin. But he doesn't just see the need. He knows the scriptures, he knows God's promise, and he knows what has to be done. So he doesn't wait for permission, he doesn't ask for step-by-step instructions, and he's not waiting for someone to come along and say, okay, we've got a plan, let's, let's mark this out, let's do this. But he says, God, I know your word, I know what I'm called to do, so for your sake, I'm going out on mission. Just make your servant successful today. Let me say this, I really love how he ends this chapter. It's a very strange statement. I find it weird. It just says, I was a cupbearer to the king. In that one odd sentence, here's what I think he's saying. I'm not a builder. I'm not a leader. I'm not a priest. I'm not a prophet. I'm not an architect. But when he says all the things that he isn't, he says something very simple. He says, I'm a cupbearer to the king. So he's saying, I've got a resource. God, you've put me somewhere and you've given me something that I can use to go out on mission for you. I've got access to the king. And if I wanted, at the risk of my life, I could get an audience with the king. 
So yeah, us here, we're not all preachers, we're not all prophets, we're not all seminary-educated, ordained ministers of the gospel, but what we are, church, if you look around, what we are is we are teachers, we're carpenters, we're mothers, we're dads, we're chefs, we're waiters, we're shoppers, we're nurses. We're all cupbearers in some way. God has given us some place and a resources, a resource to use for his glory to go on mission with so we can take that and say, God, make your servant successful today in the space that you've given me as I go out on mission. Church, realistically, we can't even fathom the impact that we would have on our hockey teams, on our schools, in our Walmarts, in our independent grocers, in our neighborhoods, if we were no longer passively praying, but actively praying, God, make your servant successful as I go out on mission today. Got a little story here that has been told differently from a different platform, but because I was there, I'll tell it the right way. My brother-in-law, who has also preached this story, tells it differently. So I was, I live, I grew up on a river. It's, it's as wide as most of the lakes here. It's St. Clair River. You have those thousand foot freighters coming through ocean liners. So I grew up on that river. And there's some days when you were born and raised in that area, you don't swim because the waves are crazy high. The wind's too much. It may be warm, but it's not worth it. So there was a day where for some reason, this like 50 year old green bucket we've had in our family forever was sitting at the end of the dock and the wind blew it in. Me and my dad are sitting there having a coffee. And I'm like, I'm quite wise in this moment. I'm not going in to get that bucket. It's a bucket, not worth it. My dad says the same thing, but my brother-in-law who's new to Canada, decides that he's going to be a hero. And just, just for a little update, he's got like the yellow badge of swimming where you just dip your toes in and you get a badge. That's his, that's, that's it. I have orange. I'm one level up, but he's yellow. So he decides to grab my kayak, the ones you sit on top, and he starts bombing out there. And just for a little understanding, this river moves at eight miles per hour constantly. So if you want to swim up, you're swimming nine miles to go nowhere. So he's going, and as he's going out, he's going down fast. And he sees the green bucket and he reaches out and the kayak just pops up and it's gone. I kind of chuckle and I look at my dad and he's like, not funny. He's gone. He's like, Marshall, you got to get him. I'm like, oh no. And then I see this, this little tiny hand like, help! It's like, oh no, he's going down and he's like, he's going eight miles an hour and he can't swim. So I think, oh God, you got to help me here. And I look down and there's this beautiful 1996 slightly sun-faded sea-doo sitting at the, on my left here. So I look down and think, I got to get the keys. My dad's like, run, get the keys. He's going down. So I run in the house, grab the keys, run out, and I'm sitting on it trying to start my 96er and it's puttering, puttering, puttering. And then finally, whew, big puff of black smoke. She fires up and I'm running out to catch him, and I'm thinking, God, please don't let this stall. Just let me get to him, God. Just please let me get to him. I finally pulled up to him, and because I'm orange level, I'm like, don't touch me. You're going to pull me in. Anybody suffering is going to pull me in. So grab the sea and I'm going to pull you to shore. Just grab the sea So we get him to shore, and I get back, and my dad is, like, exhausted mentally. He went through too much. I'm like, yeah, I know what you're feeling. I, ex I experienced that. Kevin denies the urgency of it, but I'll tell you, it wasn't a beautiful scene. It was so fast, so scary, it was so urgent that I know you're all thinking I was like David Hasselhoff glistening in the sun, shooting at the sunset. That's not what it looked like. 
Like, there was a lot going on in my head, so much that I left a pile of life jackets, I left the life buoy that was hanging, and I was just like, I gotta go! There's an urgency, there's a desperation for a drowning person that, that needs me and the resource that I have at my side, and I gotta use it, and I gotta go save him. Because that's what I, there may have been somebody else that would have come help, I don't know, but I know what I was supposed to do. I saw it, so I chased him. Now, what if I, what if that story just looked a little bit different what if I stood there, I saw the wave bobbing up and down, and I said, you know what, my sea is not the best. There's a good chance it won't start. There's a good chance it's going to stall. So why don't I just stop, and I'm going to sit back and pray, God, you just bring, there, there's a lot of docks in this area, just bring one of those really nice sea Bring someone else, a better resource, someone that has a better sea that won't stall, that will get there. Bring them out. I'll just pray that you take them and save that life. Or, secondarily, I am not lifeguard trained, but my other brother-in-law, Craig, is, probably like 40 years ago, but he's still lifeguard trained. So my prayer could have been, you know, God, just bring Craig. I'm going to sit on the dock and pray, and maybe 40 or 50 docks down, Craig will, like, run out and just do this perfect swan dive and save a life, and it'll be incredible. Or, of course, maybe God does want me to save a life. Maybe I, I couldn't possibly know, so I'm going to pray that God will just knock the life buoy off the hook, and it'll sit on the ground, and in big red letters, it'll say, save Kevin's life, and then I'm going to know. So we can laugh at that. It sounds stupid. It sounds like a silly thing to say, but what is our prayer life really like? Have we ever prayed, God, I'm not gifted, and I'm not skilled enough to go do what everybody else seems to be able to do, so instead of me opening my mouth to defend the gospel, I'm just going to invite him to church and let Kai do it. Let Pastor Kai do it. I can't do that. I'm not gifted or skilled enough. Or maybe I say, God, I, I've got some resources, but I'm not as rich as other people in my church. I don't have as many things as other people, so what I'll do is I'll just pray that God brings somebody else with more resources so they can give more, so they can sacrifice more than I can, because I don't have enough. Or maybe, maybe we sit in that place where like, we're, we're not certain this is God wants. Outside of a, like a stork dropping off an adult male at my door, knocking and saying, I need to know Christ, can you help? I can't be too sure. So God, just, just give me evidence. Maybe there is a life buoy that will say, save Kevin's life. Let me tell you a little thing here. There is a life buoy. It's, you can read Matthew 28, and in big red letters, it says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Here's what I really love about using Nehemiah here. I really like Nehemiah because I promise you this. If God wanted to use the Jewish Construction Brothers Limited and build that wall on the tabernacle budget, he could have done it right there and then. He doesn't. God uses a guy, Nehemiah, that just carries a cup to a king. It's his job. He carries a cup to a king. But he has no skills. He's untrained. He's non-builder, Jewish cupbearer to the king. And God says, I'm going to use you because you're willing to see the need. I can't speak for you out there, but I can't tell you how often I feel so unskilled, so untrained, so unusable in my life. Here's the beauty of just this part of Nehemiah. The beauty of him using Nehemiah here is he doesn't need a good speaker. You can ask Moses. He doesn't need the strongest in the family. Go ahead and ask David or Joseph. He doesn't need a powerful warrior. You can ask Gideon. What he needs, church, is the faithful. He just needs the faithful that are willing to see the call 
and see the resource that God's given him to move forward in our call to be on mission for him. God, I pray that you would give me a heart like Nehemiah, one that would see the broken world, that would weep and mourn with my brothers and sisters in Christ for the world around me, weep and mourn, to embrace and recognize the calling that you've given us, but not just stop there, but have a boldness to move forward. God's saying, make your servant successful today because I'm not that good, but make me successful as I go out on mission for you. God, I pray that that's my prayer life. We're going to turn uh, to chapter 2. If you have a pen, if you're in your car, you can dig in that little thing in the, in the door. I'm sure there's pens there. You can throw them around. If you have a pen, if you have a Bible, there's a couple lines here I'd love you to highlight as we go through this. So follow along with me in chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine up and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing as you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. If you want to highlight that, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I had given him a time. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may pass, let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house of which I shall occupy. Then the king, underline this part, then the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. For the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a really sweet freedom in reading this little part in chapter two here for me. It's watching Nehemiah be deeply afraid. The guy got, he has his own book in the Bible. He's a wine bearer and he's deeply afraid to be going on mission and I got to tell you, this, when we talk about courage, if you guys are movie watchers, I always just picture like that World War II movie where the guy has his, his helmet is on like an angle because he's, he's not even buckling it up. He's got two big belts full of bullets. He's got guns over every shoulder. He's got a cigar in his mouth. And he's just walking through an open field full of landmines, staring down the enemy saying, I'm coming. That's what I picture when I see courage. But that's not courage, folks. That's what we call a sociopath. Courage is that like 90-pound medic who has his hat on, his backpack on, all his gear, all his protective gear. He's behind the fort and he's sitting and waiting and then he sees a brother go down in the field. He's like, I got to get there. So he takes off his protective gear because he's got to go fast. He takes everything off and he starts crawling through the mud past landmines and he's whimpering and crying all the way. But he gets there and says, I'm here. I'm going to save you. There's hope. That's courage. The Bible says, do not be afraid and fear not. Check this out. It's said to be said 365 times in the Bible. One for every day of our life, but I probably need like four or five in a day. The reason I think that it's repeated over and over and over and over again is because this. Things are scary. Because I'm fearful. 
because I'm terrified. That's just the facts. So often I allow my fear of man or my fear of failure to trump my fear of God. God's like, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Every time when you guys are reading through God's word, just highlight that every time you see it. What a sweet reminder is that we can, we can hold on because God is with us. Courage, courage isn't being fearless. It's knowing exactly where to place our fear. Courage isn't this unwavering confidence in yourself, but it's an unwavering confidence in who God is. It's like in Nehemiah when we see a need and we know, we know we're called to it. We see somebody in our lives that's struggling with a broken marriage or we see somebody that's struggling with cancer. We see someone that's struggling with their economy. We see someone that's struggling with anger or rage or shame. And we're like, man, God, I know you're calling me out. I know I got to go stand with them. I got to pray with them. I got to live life with them. I got to open God's word with them. And I don't want to because I'm scared. But courage is that like when your knees are knocking together and you feel that pit in the bottom of your stomach because you're so fearful, but you press forward and you pray, God, make your servant successful today because we know we're called to do it. I'm going to read you a little thing here about chapter two. Listen to this. This is just from a commentary. It says, members of the king's court were expected to maintain a cheery disposition in the presence of the king. Anything less would not be tolerated. The exactions of Persian monarchs would not endure any independence of conduct in their presence. Everyone was expected to reflect the sunlight of the king's majesty. Or they would die. So there's a boldness here. When it just says he walks in with a sad face, this isn't like me texting Kai this morning being like, man, I'm terrified of speaking today. Sad face emoji. Send. These are very different things. This is walking into a possible death sentence just because he has a frown on his face. But what does it say? It says, the kings asked him, why are you sad? He says, then I was very much afraid. He doesn't say he's afraid. He doesn't say he was much afraid. He says, I was very much afraid. This is Nehemiah standing in the king's court. He does it every day. He's got a sad face on, but now he's very much afraid. He's terrified, but he has confidence in God. So he moves forward on mission. Then the king asked, well, what would you request? There's this like little aside here in brackets that says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't know what he prayed. My guess is like, man, I'm terrified. Please make your servant successful today. It says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. He takes fear and he takes courage that's found in a confidence in the God that he knows and he moves forward on his mission. I love chapter seven on because now you can see Nehemiah kind of, okay, there's something going on here. I haven't lost my head. I'm still talking. I'm not dead yet, so God is starting to move the pieces around, so his confidence in God is starting to build. So you can picture the scene, the king's like, all right, go ahead, and he starts to walk away. Oh, wait a minute, actually, I need some letters so I can pass through the, the river. Okay, actually, I need wood from your forest. I need a letter to get wood from your forest to build the walls, to build the gates, and actually to build, to build my own house. Seems like a man that has built some confidence around the God that he's watching move pieces. Here's a big note at the end of eight. This is where we got to be. Nehemiah doesn't attribute anything that he does to himself. Nothing is because he's brave. Nothing is because of his position. Nothing is because of how good he is, but it's attributed to the king granted them because the good hand of my God was on me. If you're going to walk away today, guys, with one thing, it's going to be this. Know this. The good hand of your God is on you. 
So my question is, do you believe that? Do we have confidence in God? Do we believe, truthfully believe, that the good hand of my God is going to be on me as I walk out of here? As you drive away, as you go to the grocery store, if you go to pick up curbside pickup, if you go to get dinner, wherever you're going that is part of our mission, do you believe whatever you're called to say, do, to pray over someone, that the good hand of your God is on you so he will make us successful today as we go out on mission? If we're struggling with that belief, let me read this to you, 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity or, or cowardice or fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. That's God's spirit given to us. Listen, it's not about you. I had to come to terms with it. It's not about me. It's not about how good I am, how strong I am, how wise I am, or how weak I am, how dumb I am, how little I understand. It's about the spirit of God that's given to us. That's the spirit inside of me. I can go into things being terrified. But a confidence in the, in the spirit that God put in me can let me move boldly on mission. Because it's not about me. That's the beautiful part of God's word, that it's not about you. Don't sit there and dwell in, I don't know enough. I don't pray well. I don't know how to speak well. It's not about you. It's about God's spirit who, when we accept Christ, comes into us. And all of a sudden, when our knees are knocking together and we're terrified of what we're called to do, we find a bizarre, miraculous courage because God is here. And because the good hand of our God will be on us today. Church, what if we were known as a people of prayer? That when we looked at the world around us that was drowning in the waves that are far off, going further and further away, and we didn't just stop in passive prayer, but we wept and we mourned and we fasted and then we prayed, but then we went out on mission and say, God, I don't know what to do. I'm terrified but please make your servant successful today as I go out on mission. And then we just did it. Not worried about how good your sea do is, not worried about how, much you, how well you can swim, but knowing that God, the good hand of our God, is on you today to press forward. This, this whole town would be shifted and changed, Ontario, Canada, the globe around us, if we put our full confidence in God would be an incredible shift for God's kingdom. He doesn't need a priest. He doesn't need a prophet to talk to a king. He doesn't need a builder, and he doesn't need an architect to build a wall. What he needs, church, is he needs the faithful. He needs people who are in God's word, reading who he is, understanding who God is, building their confidence in God by understanding how he moves, how he interacts with people, how he loves, and then we can move forward with a confidence not built on ourselves, because I'm going to remind you, it's not about us. It's built in a confidence that knowing that the good hand of our God is on us. I'm going to end on this prayer. It's the, the prayer of King David. The worship team wants to start coming up. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. For what can mortal man do to me? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Pray that's our prayer this morning. Let me close in prayer. God, we're thankful that we can read about you using people as 
unexpectedly as Nehemiah, a guy that just serves the king wine. God, the truth is you can use us all. We just have to be faithful to your calling. I pray that we, we bypass the fear that we have because we understand. We can set that aside because we understand who you are. We can put our confidence in you so we can move forward on mission, the mission that you've called us to, which is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. God, we thank you for the people here that you've called them here. It's not by chance, but you've drawn them here for today for a purpose, for a reason. And I pray as we leave, we don't forget that, that we're here for a purpose, for a reason. God, I pray that we do mission well, that we're unceasing in our mission, that even though we're terrified, we can continue through what you've called us to do. God, thank you for your goodness this morning. Thank you for what you brought here. Thank you, Jesus, for stopping the rain that was at a 90% chance, but you laugh at 90% chances. God, thank you for all that you've done for us this morning. Amen.